This was a vision. I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Look, the world is full of these kind of things. Black masses, mutilations, mutilations. The incubus, the succubus. I'm telling you, we got to go down to the religious supply store. we got to get ourselves a couple of gallons of holy water. My cousin Jerry's a priest. He can get us a deal. Do you want him to take your family, kidnap them, tear their livers out, and make some kind of satanic pate? Hey, once they get in here, it's over, pal. Trigger warning. This podcast may include explicit content that will take you out of your comfort zone and make you question reality. Listener's discretion is advised. Hello, how are you? So it is a new year and time for a new chapter. I know you all loved the Laurel Canyon series a lot, but what if I told you this new series is even more astonishing? I'm going back, all the way back, to the beginning of time, literally. I will be bringing the cosmic fire to explore the mysteries of our ancient history. Are the myths of our past actually memories? I hope to answer that question for you. Please check out the Nephilim Myth or Memory podcumentary on the YouTube channel. It's astounding. Some of my best work. You gotta check it out. I'm seriously planning on releasing quite a few more podcumentaries if I start feeling the love over on the YouTube channel, because if three people watch it, I mean, I don't necessarily know if it's worth the six hours working on the damn thing, but please go check out the Nephilim Myth or Memory podcumentary on the YouTube channel. And if we're just having honesty hour, I have to admit I was very conflicted on whether or not to post this series because it is so controversial. And this podcast really is here to make you think and question everything that you thought you know. And our ancient past is a part of that, but also spirituality is a part of that. And I had a bunch of very weird things happen to me while trying to record this series. I had audio issues. My power went out a couple of times. I had uh, my recordings record half of it and then just the other part of the audio disappeared. Um, I had to go back and add information and re-record it. In total, I recorded these episodes for the new series over four times because things just kept fucking up and just weird stuff. Like even in my personal life, the second I started recording these episodes, a bunch of really negative stuff happened to me. And I was like, you know what? I got to the point where I said, I don't even want a podcast anymore. That's how weird this shit has gotten. And I connect it back to the main point that I'm trying to make this series and it's probably very important that I make this series and um, the powers that be whether they're spiritual or not are trying to keep me from accomplishing this goal but that's not how we do things here on the Cosmic Peach podcast I won't stop I won't be stopped and if you're not ready for the fire you may get scorched so Let's jump into this series open-minded and ready for your world to be rocked. Join me now as we explore the ancient ruins of the world. Here we go, part one, myth or memory. All right, here we are. I started this episode, and it was only going to be one episode, because I watched the documentary on Netflix called Ancient Apocalypse, presented by Graham Hancock. And a lot of you may be familiar with Graham Hancock. 
He wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, among other books, and he suggests that our history is much, much, much older than archaeological studies show. I agree with this. And I don't know if it was because it was on Netflix or if Graham doesn't see the bigger picture or a combination of both. But there were a lot of details left out in that documentary that need to be covered and talked about. What started as my theory on what was going on with these ancient sites mentioned in the show turned into an entire series on what's going on in the world now and where we're going from here. As I've said in many episodes, sometimes information just pops up in my life and that's how I know it's time for me to cover it. And what I will be doing is a series on the Nephilim. Who were they? Why were they here? And where are they now? What is their role in society today? And how can I prove their existence? In order to do that, we have to go back into the past. Way back. I'm talking the beginning of time. And in these episodes, I will reveal the ultimate conspiracy. It's not a theory. I would consider it conspiracy realist, conspiracy truth. What you decide to do with the information after it's been presented is up to you. I'm going to start you off slowly and then by the end of the series, I hope you will be convinced that Nephilim are responsible for the ancient civilizations of the past and the anarchy in our world today. What we will be covering in the first episode, episode one today, are the ancient structures discussed in the Netflix documentary, Ancient Apocalypse. Graham Hancock does not believe that giants ever walked among us. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. I, of course, say shame shame Graham Hancock of course giants walked among us and in some of these locations it becomes abundantly evident that we were not alone in our ancient civilizations these structures are much older than the archaeologists are willing to admit. They say our first civilization was max 6,000 years ago. But it doesn't add up with the structures. It doesn't add up for their timeline of hunter-gatherers who over thousands of years began to develop architectural, agricultural, so on and so forth, skills. While there could have been hunter-gatherers living amongst the more advanced civilizations, I do not believe they were responsible for what we're seeing in these various locations. The first location that we're going to talk about from the show Ancient Apocalypse is Ganung Padang in Indonesia. And Ganung Padang means Mountain of Enlightenment. There's supposedly a very mysterious atmosphere that surrounds this location. I've never been there. I can't confirm or deny. But if what I believe to be going on was going on, I can see why there would have been a mysterious atmosphere that continues to surround this location. People come from all over the world to purify themselves in a spring at the base of the mountain. This is very important. A lot of these ancient structures are built near sacred, naturally occurring 
springs or sites similar to that. So our first location is no different. It's built near this sacred spring. And after you purify yourself in the sacred spring, you then hike up the steep hillside to the tippity-toppity. And at the top, you find the ruins of an ancient megalithic structure. I'm talking about thousands of hexagonal stone slabs that archaeologists believe were nothing more than volcanic rock that had been strewn about. But taking a closer look, these basalt stones have been cut. It is clearly man-made. You can see what used to be walls and rooms. There's a structure here. You can see this had design. Up to 50,000 of these stones are actually from another location and then brought there weighing a half ton. So how did they get to the top of this mountain? Anti-gravity? I don't know. I believe anti-gravity advanced technology got them to the top of the mountain and then cut them and then laid them out in the design and structure. But let's not put the cart before the horse. So they say the first layer of the overall structure is about 500 BC. But then four meters down, it dates to 5200 BC. And mainstream, again, would have us believe that hunter-gatherers built this. These basalt stones cover 37 acres. And it also appears that these basalt stones have mortar in between them, holding them together like cement. Again, this doesn't occur in nature. In the show, they do a reconstruction, and I love reconstructions. When they show you what it looked like in its prime, when the structure was new, you almost have to imagine standing in awe of these megalithic structures. Gunung Padang appears to have been a gigantic multi-layer structure with steps going up to terraces almost like a step pyramid. It covers an area about 490 feet long by 130 feet wide. The structure, to me, looks like it was a gigantic terraforming project. A megalithic step pyramid. Using ground-penetrating radar, they actually detect, under the structure, three separate chambers hundreds of meters down under this motherfucker. And with core drilling, they discovered the earliest layer of construction started 24,000 years ago. To make this make sense, the island of Java, where it is located in Indonesia, did not used to be an island. It was actually the southernmost part of a vast Southeast Asian continent called Sundaland. Graham Hancock proposes that during the last ice age, sea levels were at around 400 feet lower than they are now. I'm not 100% sold on the ice age theory. I have my own theory on that, but I agree that when Ganung Padang was constructed, there was a supercontinent called Sundaland, and sea levels were at 400 feet lower than they are now. I agree with that. And Sundaland was the size of the western United States, and it was an entire subcontinent with advanced civilization. There's actually another structure not far from Ganung Padang that is also made with the same volcanic basalt blocks, and it's called Non Madal on the island of Pompeii. But at one point, these structures were on the same landmass. So, what happened to this advanced civilization? 
Again, Graham Hancock believes there was an ice age that eventually led to a sudden inexplicable rise in sea level. A flood. A legitimate great flood. He theorizes that between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, the oceans of the world rose dramatically in a series of immense deluges, one after another, which is why the continent of Sunderland got drowned and became a lost world. I agree with the floods. I just don't agree with how he presents them. And we will get into that after we cover all of the ancient sites. But think about it. The story of this great flood would have traumatized the world, right? So is there any mention of this great flood in any other text besides the Bible? Yes. Nearly every ancient culture preserved traditions of the great flood that swallowed the entire earth. Where Ganong Padang is located in Indonesia, they tell the story of the creator god Dibata, who sent a great flood to cleanse the earth. Sound familiar? And all but two were drowned. And these two were responsible with repopulating their area. Of course, there's Noah. And in India, they tell of a fisherman, Manu, who survived a great flood after being warned by a god. Who else? Well, we have the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the ancient Greeks, and the Chinese all have the great flood story. My question to you is, is this a myth or is this a memory? A lot of the ancient sites from around the world and cultures have been chopped up to nothing more than fairy tale stories including hieroglyphics, symbolism, and the purpose behind the structures themselves. And I would argue that these are not stories. They're not playing patty cake and telling you mother goose rhymes with these stories, paintings, and depictions found at most of these ancient sites. And to prove my point, our next stop is in the Puebla region of Mexico, in a town called Cholula. Not the hot sauce people, the town. And it holds ancient secrets. When the Spanish conquistadors took over the region, they massacred the indigenous inhabitants and destroyed their culture and erased their history. But they couldn't erase everything. There is a hill, quote-unquote, with a church built at the top. But it's actually not a hill at all. It's the most massive monument ever built in the world. You may not have heard of it, but it's the Great Pyramid of Cholula. This motherfucker rose to at least 213 feet high. Evidence suggests it was originally dedicated to the ancient Mexican god of rain and floods, whom the Aztecs knew by the name of Tlaloc. This structure is out of this world. It's roughly 30 football fields at the base, 400 meters by 400 meters, making it the largest pyramid ever constructed by any civilization anywhere. Now get this shit. Under the pyramid, there are eight kilometers of tunnels. And what they also discovered is that there was an even more ancient pyramid within the Great Pyramid of Cholula, and beneath that, another more ancient pyramid. And beneath that, Another one. Literally like nesting dolls, but pyramids. So why did they construct this? And why this area? Much like Ganung Padang, the first internal pyramid was built over a very important spring. 
This spring represents a passageway into the underworld, which would be a very ceremonial place, a sacred place, much like the sacred spring at Ganong Padang, and much like the subterranean chamber beneath the Great Pyramid of Giza. It turns out that all these major pyramids are built on already existing natural sacred sites. Besides the eight kilometers of hidden tunnels in the nesting dolls of ancient pyramids under the Great Pyramid of Cholula, we also find that there is a secret inner chamber that they refuse to publish and refuse to excavate and refuse to allow people to enter. Keep that in mind as our research moves along. We also see painted inside the tunnels depictions of serpents, mythical creatures, and they're telling us a story. Much like a lot of structures from around the world, this pyramid is aligned to the setting sun during the summer solstice, and we're meant to believe that hunter-gatherers constructed this site. The same hunter-gatherers who are loincloth wearing, twigs in hair, berry picking, no tooth brushed, couldn't understand what a wheel was, hunter-gatherers. Oh, hell no. I think it would make more sense to look at the myths from the region to discover why it was really constructed and by whom. And according to myth, the Great Pyramid of Cholula was the work of a race of giants. Nephilim? Flood? Sounds familiar. So also according to these myths, these giants were wicked, and the god Tlaloc sent a flood to destroy them, and only seven survived. And before we press on with this story, we should also talk about another location in Mexico called Tatskatzingo. This is another massive pyramid up on a super fucking tall mountain. Tatskatzingo has been compared to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It featured terraces and gardens and pools with aqueducts carrying water all the way down the mountain and also dedicated to Tlaloc. Tlaloc's cult long predates the Aztecs. The Aztecs just took advantage of already existing structures. And we see this over and over again. And not far from Tecatzingo, is the largest single-cut stone in the Americas, and it is a sculpture of Tlaloc. Tlaloc dates back to prehistoric Mexican civilization, and in this story, after Tlaloc sends the Great Flood, we meet Quetzalcoatl, the Feathered Serpent. I want you to remember as we're moving along in episode one, that I will be diving into an incredible amount of detail on all of these myths as our episodes progress. But in this episode, I'm just discussing the structures, and then we're going to hit it even harder in episode two. But with this mythological story, we're meeting Quetzalcoatl, the Feathered Serpent, who arrived on the Mexican shores riding in a boat with no paddles, said to be carried by serpents. And he and his followers taught the locals how to rebuild society, grow crops, instructed them in the way of architecture, astronomy, etc., and they worshipped him. Now, let's not forget that the civilization after the flood, the Aztecs, were the result of teachings by Quetzalcoatl. And the Aztec priests, using razor-sharp obsidian blades, sliced open the chests of sacrificial victims and offered their still-beating hearts to the gods. 
They then tossed the victims' lifeless bodies down the steps of the pyramid. Now, where did they learn this from? Keep that in your pocket as we move along. Eventually, Quetzalcoatl was ousted and ended up sailing away, but he promised to return. And even down to today, they teach the story of Quetzalcoatl, much like the ancient Greeks, and their story of the titan Prometheus, who, after a great flood, shows up and shares knowledge and secrets to help rebuild the new civilization. In the South American Andes, pre-Inca civilizations describe a robed, bearded figure named Viracocha, who also emerged from a great lake and taught the local people how to create amazing works of masonry that still fucking exist today. And speaking of masonry, let's not forget the Order of Quetzalcoatl, also known as Q. Let me not get ahead of myself, but we can see where this is leading. We don't have structures and buildings like that now. They have withstood the test of time, literally. I can't even go down to my local McDonald's without the ceiling being caved in, water leaking out in a bucket underneath collecting the rainwater. But we're supposed to believe that hunter-gatherers constructed these immortal buildings. Does that make sense to you? So, I mean, even in the Pacific, Polynesian legends speak of Maui, and it goes along these same lines. Again, are these myths, or are they memories? We also have the last structure I will be discussing in Mexico, known as Zechacalo, built by the indigenous culture. Two large pyramids are dedicated to Tlaloc and Quetzalcoatl, and carved on the sides of the pyramids tell the story of the Great Flood in serpentine imagery. Of course, Quetzalcoatl was known as the Feathered Serpent, and this will become very important to our research. Now, the next location is in the Mediterranean in Malta. And the structure in question is that of Gigantia, another megalithic structure. Some of the stones that make up Gigantia weigh up to 50 tons. Again, hunter-gatherers? In its original form, it was as tall as a three-story house built from huge stones stacked on top of each other. The walls were quote-unquote painted red. Painted red. And in the center, we see the remains of several altars where charred remains of animal bones were found, suggesting ritual sacrifice. Now, this seems to be a reoccurring trend with the altars and sacrifices. I think we're starting to see why God flooded them out, but we're getting close to that again now. We're on the precipice of something very big in our own civilization, much like the ancient civilizations. But before we get too far in, there is virtually no information on why or how Gigantia was built. And get this shit, it's not the only one. Just on the island of Malta, 19 more of these ancient temple-like structures are built. But the oldest is Gigantia. But here we go. There's an ancient legend in Malta concerning a giantess called Sansuna. And it's said that the giantess had intercourse with one of the men from the island and gave birth to a hybrid child. And to commemorate this child, the temple was built in a single day and night. 
Graham Hancock scoffs at the fact that this could be a literal interpretation. Giants living among us, creating hybrid children who were capable of not only advanced civilization, but technology. And I argue it is literal. So we see again the appearance of the Nephilim. Malta was a part of Sicily during the quote-unquote Ice Age, but I find it more as proof that there was a flood. And the proof is also located in a cave called Gar Dalam. There is a stone within this cave with a cultural layer dating back 11,600 years ago, and human teeth are embedded in this stone. This throws out everything we know about our timeline. There were not supposed to be humans dating back 11,600 years ago capable of creating these structures. So everything we know goes out the window. And another temple on the island of Malta is Minadra. And whoever built Minadra had an extraordinarily advanced understanding of the cosmos. This temple lines up with all the solstices. And the other 19 temples followed the star Sirius. Here's another connection. In ancient Egyptian culture, they also followed the alignment of Sirius. And it was associated with the annual flooding of the Nile and the New Year. It was also a symbol of the goddess Isis, also mentioned in Wizard of Oz, but that's another episode. We do see this connection, though, with a lot of these ancient civilizations that should have known nothing of each other. Another connection would be that all the Maltese fishing boats are adorned with a curious symbol. The Eye of Horus. And Horus, father was Osiris, husband and brother of Isis, who brought culture and modern civilization to Egypt. And then Osiris left Egypt, left it to Isis to rule, in particular, and he then went and traveled around the world to bring his teachings to other parts of the world. Is this a myth? Or is this a memory? as we see very similar happenings in Malta and Mexico. So, could it be that each of these traveling heroes who brought knowledge and wisdom after the flood all come from one place? One place who sent out ships to all corners of the earth after the destruction of their own civilization from the Great Flood. Does this sound familiar? I'm talking about Atlanteans. And to prove my point, we now must continue our journey through our ancient architecture. And the next one will be Bimini Road. Bimini Road is off the coast of the Bahamas, very near the Bermuda Triangle, mm -hmm. and very near Little St. James Island. Remember what I said about them constructing these huge megalithic pyramids and temples near naturally pre-existing sacred sites. Much like the springs, I believe water is typically involved and portals could typically be involved. I argued this theory about the Bermuda Triangle in a previous episode, not even realizing how close Bimini Road was. 
to not only the Bermuda Triangle, but Little St. James. Now, these locations at one point before the flood would have been on the same landmass. So why do you think Epstein chose to build his temple near this sacred place? They know shit that we are unaware of and are completely oblivious to. There's no accidents with these elites and their plans and their positions. The Nephilim probably opened the portals at these sacred locations and they still use them today to channel through our realm. That's why you need these sacred temples located near the portals to charge them up with the blood of the human sacrifice. I know maybe I've lost a couple of you just now, but don't worry. I've got plenty of evidence to substantiate my claim. These Nephilim, these are the watchers who human men traded women for technology and they built these structures near the sacred sites where the portals to the other realm are located where the nephilim are stepping through that's why little saint james is located near the portal of the bermuda triangle and bimini road where an ancient civilization sunk a sacred site and another sacred site that we need to discuss is Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe is in Turkey, so not near Bimini Road or anything. And by the way, I do not think the site of Bimini Road was Atlantis. But it was involved with a network of other cities similar to Atlantis. I have an entire other episode, though, just on Atlantis. So... Let's now talk about Gobekli Tepe. Again, it is in Turkey, about 26 miles from the border of Syria, in the area once known as Mesopotamia. And in 1994, while investigating a field, archaeologists find stones sticking out of the ground, and upon several excavations, something remarkable is revealed. Another megalithic stone structure, buried under the ground. Gobekli Tepe dates back to 11,600 years ago. It shouldn't exist if we accept the timeline that modern archaeologists have laid out for us. But Gobekli Tepe is the oldest acknowledged ancient structure on Earth, a highly sophisticated and highly advanced megalithic structure. It's 7,000 years older than Stonehenge, and 7,000 years older than the Pyramids of Giza. So where do we get the notion that there was no ancient culture in the world capable of doing this? It's absolutely bewildering. It's perched on the side of a hill, and we see four circular chambers connected to each other with T-shaped pillars weighing 10 tons in the center. It has a polished stone floor. It's intricately carved and intricately decorated. Astonishing carvings and symbols of animals are everywhere at Gobekli Tepe. And Graham Hancock compared it to Noah's Ark in stone. We also see depictions of robed figures, among other symbols. And in 2003, they detected up to 20 more enclosures, but most remain unexcavated. This megalithic complex spreads across nine acres. And what's even more astonishing is that in 2019, Turkish archaeologists began excavating a site nearby, even older than Gobekli Tepe and even darker, in my opinion. And it's called Karahan Tepe. 
So they make mention in the Netflix documentary that Turkish authorities had never allowed outside camera crews to film there until now. And that is by design. We are seeing evidence and proof of the Nephilim all over Karahan Tepe. It's shocking, the evidence. We see more robed figures. And it looks like a sacrificial ceremonial site to me. The archaeologist who was leading Graham Hancock through this structure admitted that they don't understand at all what it was used for. But we clearly see that it's got a platform with a dugout aqueduct of sorts that leads into a pit for draining blood. The pit is two meters deep. And inside this chamber or pit, whatever, are ten long phallic-shaped pillars that have been purposefully and skillfully carved out of the bedrock and stick straight up into the air. I do believe, though, that at one point these were probably spears to throw the bodies onto, considering that the sneaking, snaking channel aqueduct thing that had been cut out of the bedrock was to allow some form of what they called liquid to pour into this chamber. What the fuck do you think that liquid was? Blood. It was a fucking blood pit. And this blood pit is dominated by an imposing and mysterious sculpted head. There's something serpent-like about the head and neck that guards over the blood pit. There's something very sinister about this snake's body with a human head at the end. Even Graham Hancock, as skeptical as he is about taking these myths literally, said he felt terror and fearful while he was at this site. And at Karhan Tepe, there are 20 more chambers waiting to be excavated. And here we go. Just like Malta and in Indonesia with Ganung Padang and Cholula, these ancient sites, the lore is similar in Mesopotamia because they also speak of the Great Deluge. And it speaks of a small band of wise ancients, the Epkalu, who taught the people the skills of civilization. And I guess human sacrifice as well, which they left out yet again. But in the beginning, before recorded history, they say that humanity was created by the gods to be stewards of the land and animals much like Adam and Eve. But the first humans became lazy, probably with technology, and they became unruly, go figure, and unable to do the job set forth for them, and their numbers grew unchecked. So God sent a great deluge to wipe the slate clean. And then after the deluge, the gods sent the Apkalu, traditionally depicted as bearded figures in flowing robes, to instruct the survivors after the flood. Their leader was Oannes, said to have come from the sea yet again, and he walked amongst the people teaching agriculture, architecture, and astrology. Why are they leaving out the blood sacrifices? And also, similar down to the depictions of robes, handbags, etc., we also see these robed figures with the Assyrians, the Toltecs, the Mayas, the Olmecs. Now, are these myths? Or are they memories? Gobekli Tepe also follows the star Sirius, similar to Malta, other sites in Turkey, and Egypt. 
constellations of the zodiac are also represented on what they call the vulture stone in Gobekli Tepe. It also tracks the solstices and equinoxes and begs the question on how did it get buried? It's almost like a time capsule. In each and every structure, the serpent is represented. Even at the temple in Malta, you must step over a snake carving to enter into the structure. And here we go again with the serpentine imagery. These robed figures arriving by water to teach the new emerging civilization, agriculture, architecture, and astrology. They all were involved in human sacrifices and tracking the star Sirius. And I believe it is because there is only one truth to every culture around the world. And I will reveal what that one truth is in our next episode. But pressing on, our next stop is actually in America. And again, modern archaeologists would suggest that we weren't in America as far back as when these... I wouldn't say they're structures, but mounds were built. And this again throws everything out of the water because there are even fossilized human footprints that go back to 22,000 years ago in America. What we're going to be talking about is Poverty Point in Louisiana. It's a huge mound. And there have been a lot of people who've done excellent research on the mound builders. I'm going to briefly touch on it here and then hit it hard in following episodes. But these are 100 feet tall and supposedly date 3,700 years old. And supposedly no one can put their finger on what the site was used for. And Poverty Point, the mound located here, actually had other structures surrounding it like an amphitheater, all aligned to True North. And Graham Hancock believes it is a place for astronomers, that the mounds were set up to observe the solstices. And 40 Stonehenge-looking structures, almost like clocks on the ground called Woodhenge, are located near our Poverty Point Mound. And Poverty Point is just one of 800 mounds in Louisiana. I don't know if it was specifically set up to be a place for astrologers, but I believe that's a part of it. And just in North America alone, there are an estimated one million mounds. And only a hundred thousand of them still remain. Now you think about that. They're trying to tell us there was no one in America. But who was responsible for building an estimated one million mounds? And where did the mound builders go? We also see in my old stomping grounds in Ohio, perched atop a densely forested ridge, is an effigy mound called Serpent Mound. A 400 meter long snake mound. This mound spans a quarter of a mile. It's also said to align with solstices and is not just some dumb hicks putting a fucking pile of dirt together. It has astrological significance and at the end of the mound where the serpent's mouth opens, we see another pit with pillars sticking out of it, just like the blood pit at Karahan Tepe. There is a sign posted near the Serpent Mound suggesting what it was used for and who built it. And this sign is wrong, okay? They have no idea how Serpent Mound was built and who built it. It's just been restored over time. I do think it is funny, though, that 
they wouldn't even allow Graham Hancock to film at the mound because he has theories that don't align with the youngness that they want to portray. And again, we see firsthand that they try to cover up the truth around these sites, these ancient sites. Serpent Mound is also aligned with True North and is a sacred site. And based on the placement of the Serpent Mound and the alignment with the solstices, we can date it back 12,800 years ago. Native Americans also associate serpents with cataclysmic earth changes. In one of the ancient stories from the Iroquois, tell of a giant horned serpent who dwelt in a nearby lake and tormented people. And God sent a thunderbolt to kill the serpent and it caused colossal waves that sent a great flood that killed most of the people, but a few survived. And they've maintained Serpent Mound ever since. The mounds are astounding to me in many ways. It's not like a pyramid where they can try to date the stone because these mounds have been restored and they've been protected by the people in the area so you can't date the dirt i'll be touching more on the mounds in a future episode but now let us move on to our next stop which we will be going back to turkey so our next stop is in cappadocia and it is called Darren Kuyu. So in the Cappadocia area, there is evidence of volcanic eruptions. But what is most interesting is that beneath the soft rock, a hidden city is found. An unidentified civilization built this underground city. Darren Kuyu is an ancient and immense subterranean complex. You guys would be flabbergasted. I'll post videos. It is basically a series of stone tunnels and chambers plunging as deep as 85 meters below the surface. It has 18 levels of rooms and tunnels, and most of it has been mapped. It looked like an ant farm. Four square kilometers. 15,000 air ducts and more than 50 vertical shafts. Darinkuyu means deep well, and this motherfucker could shelter up to 20,000 people, but who and why did they construct this? It was a city underground, literally. It had secret meeting rooms, and no history has been written on it. Some people claim that, from what they can tell, a people inhabiting that area at the time, the Phrygians were hiding from the Assyrians who were brutal, bloodthirsty motherfuckers who would impale and even burn children alive. And I'll talk to you about where the Assyrians got this from in a moment, but... So, they suggest the Phrygians may have built this as a protective hideout. But... Were these cities already there and the Phrygians just took advantage of it? That's what I think, because there was nothing there to defend. It was a barren wasteland. So they could have just blocked the entries and starved them out if that's what they were trying to do anyways. So it just doesn't make sense they were using it as like a hideout bunker. It'd be too easy to get in there and kill them or like I said, starve them out. What it appears to be designed for was everyday living. I mean, kitchens, pantries, bedrooms, stables for animals, an ancient winery. And you have to think the food would have stayed fresh due to the temperatures under there. It was a legit underground bunker. It actually appears to go back to 9300 BC by dating the nearby axes and chisels in the area. But get this shit. It's not the only underground city in Cappadocia. They have also found 35 more underground cities. The size or bigger than Derinkuyu. But if you count the smaller underground cities in Cappadocia, that number rises to 200 underground cities. You think about that. There is another underground city called Kamakli. 
that could hold 3,500 people, eight miles deep. And on the third level down, there is a tunnel that runs far into the distance, connecting Kemakli five miles over to Darinkuyu. And some have suggested that all 200 cities are connected underground. Why the fuck do they do this? Well, let's turn to the myths. Dating thousands of years back to the Zoroastrians, their sacred texts refer back to an underground city, just like Darinkuyu, telling us exactly why it was made and who made it. Zoroaster spoke of the first king and founder of civilization, Yima. And one day as Yima was standing by the river, the great god Ahura Mazda appeared to him with an ominous warning. Not of a flood, but of a fatal winter. And told Yima to build a vera, which is basically an immense underground shelter, and to bring the best of men and women and animals and two of every kind of animal into the vera or the underground bunker. And to also bring enough food to last the fatal winter. And he told Yima that the fatal winter would be marked with a serpent in the sky. Myth or memory? Graham Hancock suggests that after the flood, the temperatures plummeted, causing the fatal winter, known as the Younger Dryas. I'm not completely on board with that. I do, however, have a theory on why these ancient underground cities were constructed and who inhabited them. But that is for our next episode. I will be making the case to you that all of these ancient civilizations were connected and these traveling heroes who brought ancient wisdom, knowledge of architecture, and agriculture, astronomy, they were all from the same place and they were the same type of beings. This is to set up the groundwork to prove that we have etched in stone evidence of the Great Flood. Now, why did we have a Great Flood? You may want to listen back to this episode a few times, take some notes, and meet me in episode two. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you on the next one.